and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Rachel Britt, and I am an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at UTMB Health in Galveston, Texas. Today's episode is a follow-up of sorts from our April 2021 episode on long-acting retrovirals for HIV, which I encourage you to check out if you haven't heard it. But now that we're about two years into using these agents, we wanted to have an updated conversation about real-world impact and issues with these therapies. I have three excellent panelists with me today, and I'm very excited to introduce them all to you. The first is Dr. Emily Kirkpatrick. Emily is a clinical pharmacy specialist in infectious diseases at University Health in San Antonio, Texas. Her practice interests include HIV, opportunistic infections, antimicrobial stewardship, and transitions of care. In her current role, she rotates through the infectious diseases service lines at University Health, with a focus on the inpatient HIV service and the outpatient HIV clinic. She serves on the Antimicrobial Stewardship Committee and is also the residency program coordinator for the PGY2 Infectious Diseases Pharmacy Residency at her institution. Welcome, Emily. We're so happy to have you today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Second today is Dr. Paul Sachs. Paul is a clinical director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital, where he holds the Bruce and Robert Beale Distinguished Chair and Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Sachs received his MD from Harvard Medical School, did his residency in internal medicine at Brigham and Women's, then fellowship in infectious diseases at Massachusetts General Hospital. He is currently Editor-in-Chief of Clinical Infectious Diseases, is Section Editor of HIV AIDS and UpToDate, and on the editorial board of New England Journal of Medicine, Journal Watch, Infectious Diseases, where he writes the HIV and ID observations blog. In addition to his clinical practice and teaching, Dr. Sachs's ongoing areas of research include clinical trials of antiretroviral therapies, cost-effectiveness of management strategies for HIV, and toxicity of antiretroviral therapy. Welcome, Paul. Thanks so much, Rachel. It's always uh, a pleasure to work with our ID pharmacists and including on this podcast today. Looking forward to it. Third is Dr. Jill Strayer. Jill is a clinical pharmacist at University of Wisconsin Health. Her practice interests include HIV, ID, pediatrics, and antibiotic stewardship. She serves on the HIV Clinic Services Committee and is the coordinator of HIV Clinical Pharmacy Service. Her project and research interests include pediatric ID stewardship, long-acting HIV injectable medications coordination, long-acting PrEP injectable medication coordination, and primary care optimization like diabetes, aging, AODA, and mental health in HIV-positive patients. Hi, Jill. How are you today? Hi. Thank you so much for having me as well. I look forward to our discussion. Great. Well, you guys are the perfect three to um, talk about what we're going to talk about today, which is more focusing on the implementation of these long-acting retroviral therapies. And most of what we'll focus on today is cabotegravir rilpivirine, since it's the only currently available long-acting injectable combination therapy for treatment of HIV in patients with no history of treatment failure. It's been available since its approval in January 2021, but has already gone through a few label changes in terms of populations and regimens. In the past two years, we've also had some additional real-world data come out on it. So to kick us off, Paul, would you mind sharing some highlights from the most notable studies around cabotegravir rilpivirine? Well, the most recent study that was presented at uh, CROI was taking people on the most commonly used outpatient therapy for HIV, which is bactegravir FTC TAF, and they're stable, no history of treatment failure, and randomizing them to continue that or to switch to cabotegravir. Uh, it's an uh, open-label study. 
and it was a two to one randomization where people got onto the uh, cabopivirine in a two to one ratio to staying on Bictegra reftacetaf. And the the one year results showed non inferiority of making the switch. This is no surprise. You know we've seen this before in people with no history of treatment failure resistance. So that's the good news. The other good news is that treatment satisfaction improved. Some would say it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because they wanted to go on injectables. That's why they went into the study. Uh, so those those two things are, are very good. Uh, the only caveat, and this has been true of all the studies, is there's a small risk of virologic failure with resistance. And that was observed in three of the participants, so just under 1%. And remember, these days, when you're treating people with HIV with standard oral regimens, uh, that actually doesn't happen. When people are adherent to their oral regimens in 2023, they don't get resistance. And so there's a small uh, but 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 discrete res- risk of resistance. And I think that you know patients need to be counseled about that possibility before they go into the into the trial. So that's that's sort of the, the major study that's recently been presented. Yeah, thanks. I learned about some of the updated studies at ID Week in the most important antiviral therapies session. They talked a little bit about the new cabotegravir, pivirine, and even cabotegravir alone uh, studies. And so I got to hear some of those updates there. I, I'm really excited that there is more information coming out about it so that we can know how to best use it and where the best population is for our patients. So speaking of our patients, I want to know what the interest in this drug has been among the patients that y'all see in your areas, um, and how have y'all identified candidates for therapy? There are definitely people that are interested in this therapy, and usually the most common thing that people tell me is, oh, I saw the commercial on TV and I wanted to ask you about it, and a lot of times they honestly don't know that much about what all is actually involved with it. So you kind of have two groups of people, people that you tell a little bit more about the medication and are still interested. And then people that find out they have to come to clinic every two months and they're like, I can't do that with my work schedule. It's not going to work out. Um, And so I think that's been really interesting since a lot of the trial data talks about, you know, everybody wanting to be on an injectable. And I think for some people, it actually ends up just not being the right choice for their schedule, their lifestyle, that kind of thing. And they're like, you know, I'm doing fine on my oral medication. I'm just going to do that instead. Um, I will say when it first came out and it was every one month injection, a lot of people were like, definitely no, but some of them kind of changed their mind once we got to bump it out an additional month because that's a little bit more feasible for them. And so I think that there's a wide variety of reasons that people are interested in this. Um, the most common ones I have are people that are like, this is the only medication I take and I'm really tired of taking a pill every single day. I would much rather do this so I don't have to think about it. We have people that think of the pill being a reminder of their diagnosis, which in a lot of cases can be something that was fairly traumatic for them. Um, And so they don't want to have that constant reminder of their HIV positivity. And then we also have some people that are worried about accidental disclosures. And so not having to worry about their medication being at their house, sitting out on the bathroom counter, one of their friends comes over, they happen to pick it up, that kind of thing um, is something that I think is a huge peace of mind for people. Um, for our clinic currently, I will say we are only using the like criteria based on the actual DHHS guidelines for identifying patients. And then I worked with our providers to come up with maybe some other things just based on the clinical trials, like some BMI cutoffs and things that we can talk about a little bit later. Um, and then I help them to go through and figure out, you know, which of these are soft criteria, like maybe they're not always the best about coming to their clinic visits versus hard criteria. If they have resistance or they have drug interactions, we absolutely can't do it. 
Yeah, and I would echo what Emily said. Our patient population in the Midwest is very similar to that in terms of um, interest after seeing a commercial on TV or in a magazine and coming to clinic asking about it and then um, saying, would I be a good candidate for it? Um, And as well as echoing the vast majority of patients who've requested it have been saying that I just, I can take all of my other medications, except I don't want to take this one for my HIV because it is a daily trigger for me to think about my HIV. And if I could avoid that at any point, um, I would, I would appreciate that. And it has been very compelling to me, the number of patients who've actually expressed that, which I find fascinating. I completely agree with Emily and Jill. Uh, I want to make two comments. First is, uh, I don't think at any point in my experience with HIV medication have the direct-to-consumer advertisements played such a big role. And, you know, we are, uh, we in New Zealand are the only countries on the planet that allow this kind of advertising. And I guess there are pluses and minuses to it. I think I'm a little cynical about it because so many of the people who come in and ask for it after seeing the ads, as Emily mentioned, once they hear the details, it's like, no, thank you. You know, two big injections every two months. I'm fine taking this pill every day. So that's comment number one. And comment number two is I, I feel like it's sad that that stigma is what's driving uh, people to want to go on this treatment. And it shows that even though we've come a long way from the bad early days of HIV, there's still a tremendous amount of stigma associated with this diagnosis. And the fact that people taking multiple other medications would choose to go on injectable cabotegravopivirine solely because of self-stigma associated with taking their pill every day is something we really have to work on. Yeah. So I don't have direct practice in HIV in my current role. So while I do acknowledge and I'm aware there is still significant stigma around HIV, some of those common reasons that y'all are all talking about and acknowledging was not even something that crossed my mind, like accidental disclosures and being in a reminder of their diagnosis. So in a way that makes me even more thankful of these therapies that now we are having options that are really making a meaningful difference in a patient's life outside of purely logistic difference, but something that can really affect their their um, psychological health as well. Uh, but that, to be honest, I, that did surprise me to hear that. So it sounds like from what all three of you are saying is a lot of the times patients are coming in and asking specifically about the therapy. Have In any of your clinics, have you proactively identified patients and approached them for consideration of switching? Or is that not something that's currently being pursued right now? In, in our clinic, we actually do have a handful of patients that we've self-identified as great candidates based on their, you know, even logistic living situation. They managed to get them a bus pass or a cab ride to their clinic so they can, they can come to our clinic. And so if we can just get them there to get their injections, uh, they won't take their pills at home, but they'll come to our clinic every month if we ask them. So it's been kind of an interesting twist to get some of those patients who are less likely to just take pills to bring them in for those visits. And we also, like Emily had done, uh, made some, a lot of criteria. Uh, we're not very strict about any of our criteria about who is going to meet this eligibility criteria. We have some very basics and then anybody else is, you know, whatever we think is going to be the best scenario for our patients. If I could make one other comment about a study that was presented at Croy, uh, is it's really an update on an experience they've had at, at UCSF. It's actually San Francisco General in their uh, Ward 86 safety net population. And they 
they've gone outside of the guidelines and said, look, we have people who, even though we have life-saving ART, they're not taking it and they're slowly or sometimes rapidly getting sicker and sicker and dying of, of AIDS-related complications. And we don't want that to happen. So they've elected with enormous support to give cabropivirine off-label uh, to people with viremia. And in the update, they described 57 patients who were viremic, uh, and they would not include it if they had either rolpivirine or integrase mutations. They had to be willing to come into clinic every four weeks. And this is a, a, a group of patients who have marginal housing and a lot of substance use disorder and, and psychiatric illness. Uh, and yet 74% received their on-time injections. And the, the great uh, result is that um, all but two of these 57 viremic people um, were able to achieve virologic suppression, including someone with viral load greater than a million. Uh, and you know there was a, a numerically higher rate of treatment failure with resistance in this population. It was 3.5% versus the 1% that I just mentioned. But, but ironically, if you think about it, it's this group of patients who need log injectables more than the other group. And the other group is stably suppressed on oral ART. And if long acting injectable never came around, they'd still be fine. They wouldn't, they would have still have the stigma issues we discussed. And, you know, but but this this group with viremia and advanced HIV disease is really one that deserves study elsewhere in 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 a in uh, presented at a meeting or at uh, in a publication. Uh, from from Ward 86 in San Francisco. So um, I'm curious whether Emily and Jill have patients like this that you've treated with cabropivirine. I, we have one person who fits into this category so far. Yeah, I'm going to say at our clinic, we had one person that um, ended up not coming for the appointment we had set up for her. But um, part of the reason that the providers wanted to go ahead and start her on it is her particular social situation was that somebody in her life um, was taking her meds and telling her that she couldn't take them and getting rid of it. And so um, trying to come up with creative ways that we could get around that. And one of the solutions we had potentially thought about was doing real pivorine. Um, and so I think that if you talk to a lot of providers, like I totally agree, this is a population that really, really needs our help. And if you think about how long acting antipsychotics have been kind of implemented into practice, a lot of places when people get hospitalized, they will end up giving them, you know, a shot of a long acting antipsychotic before they leave. And I think as more and more data comes out, I'm really interested to see if that's a conversation we start having on our inpatient HIV team about, you know, is this feasible or does the risk of them never coming for any type of follow-up afterwards outweigh the benefit? Because again, antipsychotics, if it tails off in your system, it doesn't necessarily have long-term devastating consequences down the road. Whereas this, you could have resistance, other things and problems that'll make it harder for them to be treated in the future. Um, and so I think it's definitely an interesting like thought to have and a process to think about when you're trying to treat these patients, especially the ones that are so full of social barriers like homelessness, IV drug use, things like that. Yeah, similarly, we have, I have a, at least three patients in our clinic who kind of meet similar criteria as they'd had in San Francisco. And we didn't know that they were doing that, but that gave us a little more evidence to continue to do what we were doing. Although we had at least three patients, like a um, 
young adult who had poorly taken his meds, you know, age 25, just not yet ready to take meds, uh, somebody who is commonly homeless. Uh, we ended up actually adding um, ibilizumab as a combination agent before we realized that maybe we could use cabotegravir-ribavirine by itself to bring that viral load down. But we had three patients who did a combination of cabotegravir-ribavirine plus ibilizumab for a brief time to uh, transition them to just solely that's that's what we did as well. Uh, we we did the cab ropivir nibolizumab, but but I think that if I had to do it again, I probably would leave the ibolizumab off. <laughs> you guys are jumping ahead here. I do want to touch on um, ibolizumab maybe towards the end of the episode to hear what y'all's thoughts are about some other long acting therapies. Um, but Paul, I'm really glad you brought that study up and that all three of you are talking about that potential issue. Um, of resistance development, because when I was discussing with one of my providers in our HIV clinics, his thoughts on these new therapies and even Cabinuva for PrEP, one of the things that he said was a potential concern was about the pharmacokinetic tail of these long-acting agents and the potential resistance development, particularly in a PrEP population where you tend to see more loss of follow-up. And so good to hear in terms of treatment in patients with social barriers, maybe those risks don't outweigh the benefits for people who really do have social barriers and need treatment. But what are y'all's thoughts about that PK tail and using um, long-acting Cabinuva on its own for PrEP? Well, well so far, it hasn't been the, t- the tail that's been a problem, um, even though the, theoretically that was the concern. Uh, the, the problem has been, uh, and solely in MSM population, uh, trans, MSM and trans women, it's been getting acquiring HIV despite on-time injections. And so there's there's only six failures in the clinical trial who meet those criteria. And there's a, one other case report that was a um, similar story. I, I got to tell you, cabotegravir for PrEP is much more effective than I expected it to be. Uh, these failures have occurred, uh, and it's good, very good to acknowledge them. Uh, and resistance has occurred, it's good to acknowledge them, but we have two giant studies, both one in trans women and MSM and one in cis women, and it was statistically superior to oral prep. Uh, so so it's uh, kind of in a funny situation. We're using, in clinical practice, we're using way more cabropivirine than we are cabotegravir. Uh, so we're using it much more for treatment than for prevention, even though the clinical trials data suggest we should do just the opposite, <laughs> but we're not. It just starting, starting prep with cabotegravir is still a rarity, at least in our clinic. Yeah, I would definitely echo that. And honestly, I will say, I wonder once more people actually start using it, if we are going to start seeing more problems with the yeah. actual tail of it from loss to follow-up. Um, be. Because like the thing that I think about is that in the actual clinical trials, one of the things that they did is that they were giving them open label FTC TDF at the end during the part that was the tail. And I think real life scenario is sometimes people come in and they ghost us and we don't see them ever again. We call them numerous times, try to get them back in for a new clinic appointment. And it could be they went somewhere else to get their care. Um, But I think a lot of it is just, it's a very different population. It's prevention. And so I think a lot of times it's not as important to them as maybe somebody who actually has an HIV positive diagnosis. They're like, well, I don't actually have to do this or, you know, it doesn't fit in my schedule, that kind of thing. Um, And I think the other thing that I find really interesting is like we've already seen from those clinical trials, the delays in time to positivity 
of the actual HIV labs that we're checking while the patients are on PrEP. And so that led to the CDC updating their guidance that instead of just doing the HIV antigen antibody combo test, that realistically, while patients are on PrEP, both oral and the injectable, that we should actually be checking an HIV RNA viral load. Um, because what they found is that even in the oral arm, there was like a 30-day delay to positivity for the HIV antigen antibody assay. And then there was a 90-day for the people that were getting cabotegravir injectable. And so I think that we're starting to see more and more kind of differences in the way prep practices are going. And then, like I said, my question is, are we going to start seeing people with new diagnosis HIV that have integrase resistance, which is mm. all of our first-line recommended regimens. And so I think that's going to be like a huge practice changing thing if it ends up being a major issue that we run into due to people just falling out of care. Just uh, wanted to say that that I think it, it deserves emphasis that if people are adherent to oral prep, then it works just as well as injectable cabotegravir. So uh, I, I can understand why we are still using oral prep as first line, but it is it is notable. I just stress that there's this two superiority results that we're kind of ignoring. Oh, 100%. There are people that I've wanted to put on it, but I'll tell you my personal experience in our pharmacist-driven prep clinic is I have done a test claim on every single one of our patients with insurance, <laughs> and every single one of them comes back as product not on formulary, not even you could do a prioritization. Um, a lot of them, especially since uh, now we have generic FTC TDF, um, they're like, okay, but you have to do that first, or you have to have, give us some reason that this patient absolutely couldn't use that. And then now we'll let you use FTC TAF. Um, and so I think that's also a huge barrier is just how do you get it? That's so interesting that you bring that up, Emily, because at our institution, we have had more issues with prior authorizations than we expected, either with processing time just being a lot longer than we thought or them getting rejected outright. And that's we um, at our institution, we haven't used um, cab for prep. So this is mainly with um, cabrilpivirine. And I was wondering what y'all's experience in your clinics have been and if you have any suggestions or specific ways that you've been able to handle that and get around it. Actually, uh, we actually have a uh, probably like 15 patients who are on cabotegravir for PrEP in our clinic. Um, we even worked with another uh, primary care provider who wanted to use it in their clinic. That's actually been, we have get a lot of requests from other clinics, but not necessarily when you hear all the logistical challenges, they say, no, you can just see your, the patient instead <laughs> is really the answer. Um, but what I actually ended up doing was working with some of our local um healthcare systems and insurances and help them create some criteria, say, you know, if a patient has failed one of the drugs, meaning they had an elevated creatinine, um, then you can't force them to try the other oral agent. You have to let, give them all the choices. Only failing one was, you know, kind of what we came up with. And I said, you know, based on the age or if you're even approaching, I don't, even if the FDA says approaching a creatinine clearance of 60, I don't want them to ever get there. So I'd like you to let them have the drug long before we ever meet the criteria that is listed. So I've worked pretty closely with some of the health insurances to help them kind of navigate some of those things. And Jill, do you have the same like prior auth? Did you have to do that with cabrilpivirine as well? Or are you speaking specifically to cabotegravir? So we yeah, this was predominantly with just cabotegravir for PrEP. Um, I have had pretty good luck with our cabotegravir rolpivirine. Um, we, you know, have not really made had to make any criteria. Most of our insurances allow all HIV medications to be covered, even the injectables. 
It's incredibly variable. That's the problem. I mean, uh, uh, people, <laughs> patients, they ask you, will this be covered by my insurance? And, you know, I, I have a sort of standard answer, which is, you know, there are as many variations of insurance in the United States as there are, you know, stars in the sky. And there's no way to know until we submit a prescription. And uh, I, one thing I do stress, though, is when patients ask to come in to discuss this, I tell them, even if you decide to do it and we decide on review of your records that you're a good candidate for cabropivirine, you are not getting your first dose on the day you arrive because it is going to take some time for us to process your application and get it available for you. Uh, and, and that's just a, 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 right now an absolute fact. I think another major barrier um, kind of depends on where you are in the country too is whether or not the insurance is putting this therapy under pharmacy benefits or if it's medical benefits, because those are two very different beasts. Um, and so honestly, our experience has been the pharmacy benefits, those people, pretty easy to get it through. You just submit the prescription. If you have a specialty pharmacy you can work with, they're able to obtain it really easily. And then you kind of move on from there. But when you have to go through medical benefits, most specialty pharmacies do not have capacity to do medical billing. And so then you run into the situation of like your clinic having to figure out how to handle that situation, how to obtain the medication. Um, and oftentimes, even some of the insurances will want you to work with, you can only go to CVS specialty or something along those lines that lead leads to less flexibility in being able to obtain the medication. Um, and I think sometimes even when you tell the patients like this could take a really long time, we've had people get really, really frustrated and be like, you know what? I don't even want to deal with this anymore. Like, I'm just going to go back to doing the oral therapy. And it is really hard that insurance has been such an issue for us being able to try to get our patients off the ground with this type of clinic service. Yeah, I, I agree, Emily. Oh, that was a unique challenge to our clinic was the, is this a medical benefit or pharmacy benefit? Um, unlike oncology clinics who've been doing this for years, um, this was a new thing for us. And um, interestingly, our clinic is actually located within a health system. We're actually physically located in the same building as the hospital. So we actually only use a medical benefit for all of our cabotegravir, ropivirine, or even cabotegravir. Um, I've not actually had anyone obtain it from a pharmacy benefit. So that has actually been a, a nice route for me to go because I can just walk down to our central pharmacy in the basement, pick up the drug and bring it back to clinic um, because I have... We actually have a technician, like a pharmacy technician group that does all of my prior authorizations for us, which is an interesting twist. Um, so we're even looking at hiring one specifically for our clinic so that we could um, just do it all internally. But in our health system, we have a group of technicians who request coverage, whether it be medical or pharmacy benefit, and then uh, let us know what that is. I think all this just essentially comes down to the fact that cabropivirine uh, is, and uh, and since these are generally stable patients, the uh, payers have created some friction between our uh, prescribing it and our getting it for them. Uh, you know, as, as I alluded to before, this is not a group of patients for whom if you didn't have cabropivirine, they would medically suffer. I was just going to mention that, you know, that the Vive patient assistance program is out there too for people who need help learning how to get the medications for patients. I forgot to mention that I tried to use them early on, but I found that our internal systems were 
more efficient than using them, but it is certainly an effective tool for somebody who's trying to get started. Yeah, that's a really good tip because I'm sure not everywhere has smooth internal systems implemented like maybe at your institution. So that's a good place for people to start. Another theme I've heard a few of y'all mentioned a few times is that when you go on this therapy, you're going to have to come into clinic a few more times. I remember with um, my HIV clinic at my institution, when cabropivirine was only once a month schedule, they did not even consider implementing it because there was no way logistically they could implement that kind of workflow. So then when it went to um, every eight weeks, that became a bit more feasible. But even then, patients on oral antiretrovirals most only need to come to clinic about twice a year. But if you're on a long acting, you're coming, you have to come in at least six times per year. So how have y'all managed that increased workload in already busy HIV clinic? We actually hired another nurse in our clinic to, so that every, there was always one nurse available to be able to give all the injections, whether it be cabotegravir, rolpivirine, cabotegravir, all the penicillins, all the monkeypox vaccines, uh, you know, because we're actually giving those in our clinic as well, besides public health. And so it's, you know, it's created a lot of extra work as well as on my job, just seeing patients, making sure I have the drugs physically available has been kind of a big deal, you know, and then, you know, just where do you store it? Now, all of a sudden I have these more refrigerated boxes of medications in addition to all of our vaccines we had to buy another refrigerator. <laughs> I mean, this is really, I mean, Jill's comments, this underscores the extra resources it takes. Uh, one other uh, thing is that uh, each, each clinic site that I've spoken to, and it sounds like Jill and Emily's experience is the same, you need kind of a champion of this, a person who's going to say, this is my responsibility, and I'm going to look into the logistics of how to get it, how to get it covered, how to apply for it, how to get it administered. For us, it turned out to be our nurse practitioner who then got the nursing team uh, on board with the administration of the drug. Uh, and I have to say, uh, this is I'm almost embarrassed to tell you, I had to give it myself once to a patient. It's not, it's not a trivial injection. Uh, and it's not, I got to tell you, it's not something that you want someone to just do without supervision, certainly. And fortunately, the, the nurse who was there, who was very experienced at giving it, was able to supervise my doing it. Yeah, I would definitely echo all of the things that both of y'all have said. Um, I think when you're talking to people that are really having trouble, like being able to actually implement the service, a big thing that comes up is a lot of places just don't have the support to have a single person doing the entirety of the process. Right. And when you try to break it up into kind of like piecemeal, like this person's doing this and this person's doing that, I think that there's a large chance for people to fall through the cracks or maybe people just don't have time to sit on the phone to do a prior auth for like multiple hours a day for different patients and things like that. Um, I've talked to people where they ran into roadblocks of the patient got their loading dose approved um, for the prior authorization, but the prior authorization didn't apply to the maintenance. And then they got rejected um, for the actual maintenance dose. And we're fighting constantly with the insurance trying to figure that out. And so I think it's really important to think about that if you want to start, it's probably good to start with like a couple of people and not just start implementing it where tons of people are getting on all at the same time, just so that you can figure out a workflow and process for getting through those kinks of, okay, when something bad 
happens, like who's going to be in charge of following up on that? Who's keeping track of the patients to make sure that they're actually coming to their appointment? And if it's been, you know, X amount of time outside of that window, like what is our process for doing something about that? Um, I think a fridge thing is a huge potential issue. Um, I know our clinic, we actually share the floor with tons of other clinics. And so the clinics are using the same fridge to store all the vaccines and maybe there's not room and you are going to have to purchase a new fridge, just like Jill said. Um, and then making sure your nurses are trained to do this because it is a specific type of injection. It's called a Z-line injection. And so if you have a clinic where the nurses aren't doing a whole lot of, you know, bicillin shots for the penicillin G benzathine for syphilis, they may not be as familiar with doing some of those types of injections. And so um, I know the company will actually send somebody out to do nursing education on doing the injection if you need them to, which was something our clinic did and was super, super helpful. Um, but I think that there's so much that goes into the planning of just starting from scratch. And then, like I said, my advice is don't start with like 20 people at a time, like really pick a couple of really good candidates and kind of see how it goes with them and be very open that like, this is a new process for us and we may run into some bumps, but we're going to work with you every step of the way and like, make sure that everything goes okay and keep you in the loop. Yeah. And Emily, kind of to echo, you, we were just talking about the logistics of getting started. And those are some very big barriers to jump through. And right, we had to work out a lot of kinks with our initial you know, first three patients who we started with. And then, um, again, how do you keep track of all of those patients? We have to we had to create a, a medic, like a list of patients. And then we actually had to have our electronic health record create a new column for us. So we knew when they last got their injections. Um, and but then our challenge then became if a patient canceled their appointment, the injection that we ordered for that appointment got canceled. And so we didn't know that they rescheduled. So we had to reorder the medication. So it may or may not have shown up for their visit. And so we didn't know that these problems existed. And so we've had to work through a bunch of those things to kind of retime our, you know, medications. I think one other thing that didn't happen to us personally, but some clinics went the buy-in bill route. Um, and then found out on the back end that when they tried to bill for it, they ended up only getting paid for the actual like clinic visit for the injection, but not the medication. Um, and so there's definitely down here in Texas reports of people losing like thousands of dollars per patient um, because they tried to go the buy and bill route. And so all that to say, I think the big takeaway is there have been so many interesting things that nobody ever expected to run into trying to implement these services. And every clinic you talk to has a different experience or different problems that they can speak to and kind of their workaround. Talk about a disincentive to use a, use a treatment. Not only is it hard to set up and resource intensive and you need a refrigerator and a nurse, but you're also going to have to pay thousands of dollars for this medication. Yeah, but it's worth it. We, we know we've seen it and I'm sure you all have seen it in your patients, but it can definitely be worth it. Well, clearly the fact that we're doing it shows that it's worth it for some people, because if it were, if it were, uh, you know, easy, we'd probably have way more people on long acting injectables. Yeah. Um, You guys, we've talked about uh, so many different and important logistic challenges. I'd love to hear just your brief general overview of what your process is for a patient and then what you feel your personal biggest logistic challenge has been. I know we've mentioned a lot, but I'd love to hear since y'all are all in different areas of the country, what you feel really was the biggest challenge or maybe still is. Well, let's say I can go. Our um, our 
process basically is either the patient self-identifies um, in a clinic visit or calls the clinic and says, I want you know, to hear more about this. And then they, um, that patient gets referred to myself. I'm the keeper of all Capitagavirval piverine. I elected to be the owner of it. As you said, someone needs to be the champion. It became me. And um, I go through the process of getting approval from the insurance um, and then working with the patient either through our nursing staff or social worker to contact the patient and decide should they just come in when they're available, should we set it up with a clinic visit, working with the provider to determine do we need labs? You know, should we follow what the recommendation is? Do we actually, you know, do you actually follow that or do we need new labs for this patient? And how frequently should we do that? That's actually been probably one of the most difficult parts is every provider thinks that we need to do some labs. Some people think we need to do no labs and how soon should we check their viral load after they changed has been a kind of an interesting twist. Um, but our biggest challenge probably has just been, is the medication here? Like, did the medication get ordered and arrive for this visit that's happening today? <laughs> and like that has probably been the biggest frustration for our entire clinic staff. And partly because we now have, we're giving at least two or three cabotegravir pivarine or cabotegravir injections per week, along with all of the other injections. So where is that medication? Which isn't different than a lot of other services. So yeah, I can talk a little bit about um, what we're doing. I think I'm in the really unique position of, uh, we're kind of still in the process of trying to figure this all out at our particular clinic. And so we have a procedure. It's just seeing if we can get through the entire thing and actually get somebody to be on the medication. Weirdly enough, I think a lot of the things where people are actually backing out and deciding at the last minute, like we had their oral lead in, they were ready to go. They came and they were like, you know what? I actually don't think I want to do long acting injectables. And that's actually happened three separate times to us, which is kind of like a weird scenario. Um, but all that to be said, what we're currently doing um, is that if a provider identifies a patient that is either interested or that they think would be a really good candidate for it, they've been referring them to our ID pharmacist service to do a deep chart review. And so we have um, Epic as our electronic medical record. And so I have two different smart phrase notes built in. One of them's like a checklist for our criteria. And like I mentioned earlier, we have like the hard criteria if they have resistance to rolpivirine obviously we're not going to do it. Or, you know, if they have a major drug interaction, like maybe they're on carbamazepine or something like that, where it's going to be an actual issue for them, then it's an absolutely not. But a lot of the other is just having a conversation with the provider. Like, these are the things I found when I was looking through their chart. How do you feel about that? Do you still want to try this therapy with them? Um, and then I think the biggest thing is finding the resistance history because we previously had a different electronic medical record. And when we switched over to Epic, they put the old records into actual PDF files. And so you have to go in there and click through each of the different individual lab results to try to find their resistance history, um, which is something that potentially, depending on how long the patients had HIV, can take actual hours <laughs> to find all of the information. Um, and so basically, once we're reviewing their eligibility, we put all that information together, have a conversation with the provider about it. If we're still going to go ahead, we're like, okay, great. Now that we know they're a good candidate, it's going to go one of two ways. Um, we have a pharmacy technician who works in our clinic that can help with doing any type of pharmacy benefits investigation. Um, so if it's a prior authorization through pharmacy benefits, she can do that. We have an on-site specialty pharmacy that would be able to order it for us and get the injection there and then bring it up to the clinic because we're actually not, for our health systems policy, allowed to deliver things directly to the clinic. 
Um, and so that's kind of our workaround is we get it from the specialty pharmacy instead. Um, but if it's somebody who's medical benefits, we have um, social workers that help us with the medical benefits side of prior authorizations. And so it's kind of like a team effort to figure out exactly how we would figure out getting the medication or getting it approved or anything like that. Um, and then something that I think has been really helpful for us is doing a pharmacist education appointment with the patients. And so if it's somebody that we are doing the oral lead-in in, which all of our patients so far we have been, because a lot of them actually had never had real pivoting before. And I will tell you anecdotally, one person that started their oral lead-in actually broke out in a rash. And we were like, okay, well, this is why we do this is, you know, with the NNRTIs, the class in general can cause rashes. And so if it's somebody that's never been exposed, just a th something to think about is maybe do the oral lead-in on those people versus if they've been on it before and they tolerated it fine. I'm not really super concerned about it. Um, but they come in for an education appointment. We talk about expectations, like this is what we need from you. If you're not going to make your appointment, call us ASAP. We will figure it out, but we just need you to communicate with us on that kind of thing. And then if all of that goes well, then they will do nurse clinic visits to actually get their injections because we already have that set up every single day of the week except for Tuesdays, which is like our busiest clinic day for providers. Um, but they can come in with everyone else who's getting like, you know, their ceftriaxone for gonorrhea, um, mention the penicillin G benzathine injections for syphilis. Um, we see a fair amount of STDs in San Antonio. So um, I think that that part of the process was actually really easy because we already had these clinic panels built and ready to go and a nurse who's doing that all day anyway to begin with. I think the process of searching for old resistance reports that Emily described is one that every uh, ID specialist can recognize and it's why they pay us such high salaries. That was a joke. Uh, <laughs> my, my Sorry, wife we were the, muted. <laughs> the, my wife describes the media manager uh, in Epic as the place where information goes to die. It is very hard to find things in the Epic media manager. Anyway, we we have a, a initial clinical assessment by an HIV provider who's generally a physician, and then once they think the patient is eligible, based on their review, and they do the uh, deep deep dive looking for resistance reports, then the patients referred to the uh, before the aforementioned nurse practitioner who is the champion at our site. And she takes the patient through exactly what it's going to involve, expectations, scheduling, oral lead-in versus direct to inject. Mostly we're doing direct to inject, I have to say, uh, and and then also starts the process of getting the the approval. And the approval process is then handled by our, one of our pharmacy techs. So uh, eventually, once it comes through, the, the medication is then uh, su supplied and and supplied at the same day as a as a scheduled nursing visit. One thing that has come up, which is uh, somewhat controversial, is I have uh, many clinically stable patients uh, who have been virologically suppressed for literally decades, and and they've they've kind of earned a once a year. Um, viral load. <laughs> but but once they switch to cabropivirine, they need a closer attention. And so educating the, the nurses and the and the providers that they're going to need to check the viral load more frequently, whether that should be every six months, every three months is still uncertain, but it can it can go along with the time of the uh, of the visit. 
Yeah, I would like to echo the idea of the oral lead-in. We've actually, we did the oral lead-in with our first few patients, although we realized that um, two of our very initial patients on the monthly injections were on a PPI. And so we actually elected to just skip the oral lead-in in those patients early on and realized that we probably didn't need to do the oral lead-in. Um, but instead of actually purchasing the oral lead-in, which can be a little bit cumbersome because you can only obtain it through this one specialty pharmacy in the middle of the country, that we actually end up switching to people to dolutegravir ropivirine temporarily because it's easy to acquire. And that has been kind of our easier way to work through that potential problem. We actually have had a couple of patients who had worsening mental health problems when they received the injections. So it's also kind of our little test of if you take oral ropivirine, will you do okay with your irritability and mental health challenges? Yeah. And people have had to work through that. So that's a great idea using dolotegravirolpivirine, which is much more widely available. I also just want to underscore um, an adverse effect that, that Jill alluded to, which is that both integrase inhibitors as a class and ropivirine have a CNS side effect, um, off-target effect. And so patients need to know about that because if they're on a, a regimen that doesn't contain an integrase inhibitor or contain uh, ropivirine, they might experience CNS adverse events by making the switch. And we've actually, I do definitely talk about that after I talk about how painful the injection is. I mentioned the irritability that you may or may not occur, occur. and in our patients who've were initially on the monthly, they seem to have far more CNS side effects, I've found, than the people who've done the every two-month injection. And a lot of patients have said that the, the side effects are most intense during the first 10 days after the injection, and then they kind of subside until the next injection. And sometimes they just completely go away after they've been on it for a few months. Well, thank you guys for walking through your process. And I feel like we discovered even more logistic hurdles through that, even though we've talked about a lot. So, but that's why we wanted to do this episode, um, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners and people trying to implement this therapy are running into similar hurdles. So I appreciate all of y'all's insight and advice with this. I think it's going to be really helpful for our audience and the people trying to do this. I'm going to pivot a little bit. Um, throwing it back to what we were we brought up briefly in the beginning, there are some other long-acting therapies that are FDA approved already or are on the horizon. So some examples of these are abilizumab, which uh, Jill you mentioned earlier, is latrovir, and the newly approved lenacapavir from December. Uh, I'd love to hear what y'all's thoughts are on the roles in therapy that these might play. We have as we used. Um, I never used ibilizumab until this last year when I combined it with cabotegravir ropivirine, um, mostly because I didn't find it easily done. Um, but we had some patients who were very motivated to consider trying that with their cabotegravir ropivirine. Um, and since lenacapavir was just approved, I've probably will probably not need to use the is um, use that anymore. Um, we actually have two patients who have successfully acquired lenacapavir for both the oral lead-in and the um, injection, which was a different twist in um, attaining drugs in that you, we're going to have the same problems there in that the drug in theory is only supposed to come from, I believe, CVS specialty. And then um, the oral lead-in, same thing. 
Uh, but we actually figured out a way to break that process. And we can also buy and bill through our, if you have access to the correct wholesalers, you can purchase it internally and buy and bill for it as well as what I found out after working through some significant hurdles. That's a drug, the lenacapavir, I really am finding is going to be an excellent drug to add to our cabotegravir pivarin patients who you may have not otherwise switch them to if you had some concern for past exposure of medications or potential for drug resistance or our multi-drug resistant patients who, you know, perinatally infected. I'm going to say, I think the big thing to keep in mind with um, some of these other therapies is that they're not intended to be used by themselves. Like we kind of talked about at the beginning, cabaralpivirine is the only thing that we currently have that is a regimen in and of itself. The way that lenacapavir was studied was in conjunction with an optimized oral backbone therapy. And the patient, I thought it was really nice, the patients they focused on were the ones that only have two or less active antiretroviral agents available to them. And if you look into the actual study, interestingly, they actually had a couple of people that the only fully active agent they were on was the lenacapavir. Um, And I think those are patients that just in general are really challenging for us. And so I think it's really interesting that it's only every six months. And I think as we see more and more of these long-acting therapies come out, the time period for people having to come in for these injections is going to be longer and longer and longer. Um, And I think that's really just going to be a huge paradigm shift for HIV therapy in general. But one thing that I would like to see kind of moving forward is a lot of these are all things that have to be clinic administered. And, you know, what could we do potentially to come up with formulations or just options that are things that patients could give to themselves, kind of like people do insulin injections at home. So is there a way that we can change the formulation that maybe somebody could give themselves lenacapavir at home or something along those lines just to cut down on how much space and time and things it's going to take for the clinic. And then also then the patients don't have to worry about the transportation issues. The thing to remember is that the population for whom lenacapavir and ibilizumab have been approved is very small. Uh, we're talking about less than 1% of the HIV population in the United States. Uh, they, they stand out in our minds because they're very difficult to manage. Uh, they are, as was alluded to, uh, some are have perinatal transmission and have acquired resistance through the hazards of adolescence and poor adherence. And some are also older men and women who were treated in the 1990s with non-suppressive regimens. That's really the only two populations. And uh, so as a result, there's very little use of ibilizumab and lenacapavir at this point. I think really what we're kind of doing is we're waiting with lenacapavir for two things. Thing number one is a partner that can be given every six months, and it's not going to be the broadly neutralizing antibodies presented at CROI, I don't think. I mean, BNABs are really kind of still way in the future. And thing number two we're waiting for, lenacapavir, is whether it works for PrEP. Uh, Because if there's an every six-month injectable PrEP, that would be uh, really uh, helpful to know, especially an injectable PrEP that's a completely different drug class than the primary drug classes we use for treatment. Because it would have, if their resistance does develop, um, you still have the best treatments available, which are integrase inhibitors. And I'd, I'd like to make one um, small comment about the lenacapavir. We have given it, like I said, to two patients in our clinic. And as someone who's been um, working with HIV positive patients for many years and is you know, did lots of training on infuvertride or T20, 
The uh, lenacapavir is very reminiscent of uh, T20. Uh, I went in with the nurses to give the injections. I didn't do it personally, but it is two large volume, 1.5 ml syringes of a sub-Q injection. Um, and it's very thick and yellow. And it left, it burned very badly when the patient, both patients said it burned very badly and left a nodule. And one of our patients, I checked in with them last week, and they said that it was finally resolving a month later. So it's very reminiscent of those patients who received the enfuvertide back in the day, but thankfully it's only every six months. So I guess I would just like to make sure that people are very aware to warn patients about that potential side effect. Enfuvertide was twice daily. (laughs) And left the nodules for weeks. (laughs) Torture. Yeah, I want to say I talked to somebody the other day that was part of the actual like clinical trial group for this, and they were saying that they had a couple of people where the nodules actually lasted all the way until they got their next injection six months later. Um, and so I think setting realistic expectations is probably really, really important if you're planning to start somebody on that medication, um, just because it people hear subcutaneous and they think a lot of times, again, they do kind of think of things like insulin where, you know, as long as you rotate the injection site, you're probably going to be okay. Whereas this is like more of a, you are guaranteed to get some sort of nodule kind of thing. Okay. Good to know. So it sounds like those agents might still be a bit more in the future, but I'm excited, you know, with these first agents, we have a lot of kinks to work out, but I feel like history has shown us that they tend to get better. I was going to say they always get better, but you know, they tend to most of the time get better. So hopefully this is an exciting new era for HIV therapies and we'll see a lot of new things for both PrEP, multidrug resistant HIV, and um, just general treatment of HIV come down the line. And with that, uh, we'll pivot to our I Feel Nerdy segment. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. So for today's I Feel Nerdy, I want to know what y'all are currently most excited about in the future of HIV. I am most excited actually about um, some of our long acting medications and that our patients are going to live very long lives and that I'm actually going to have to continue to treat all of the diseases of aging of our patients. And that (laughs) I have, you know, worked with some patients now for 20 years and I, you know, continue to enjoy them. I would definitely kind of echo what you're saying, because I think something that's been really cool to see is we have so many patients in our clinic now that are in their 50s, 60s, going up into their 70s. And that's very different from the population that we used to see with HIV. And that definitely comes with challenges, especially for the unfunded patients where we're serving as their primary care providers. We're having to actively think about things like diabetes management, hypertension, um, things that maybe some of the younger patients never lived long enough to experience some of those things. Um, And so I think that's one of the challenges, but also kind of to where we were talking about things that patients could self-administer. I think there were some really cool things that came out at CROI this year. I know one of the papers I saw that I thought was super interesting as a concept is somebody was looking into rectal suppository delivery of some of these medications, kind of in the concept of maybe doing that for PrEP and trying to put the actual drug at the place of exposure. Um, And I think it's so cool how creative people are getting with what can we dream up as like potentials for PrEP and HIV prevention? And I mean, I totally agree about the broadly neutralizing antibodies, but I think it's also a really cool concept that people are looking into. What if we combine antiretrovirals 
and something like that together. Like what's going to happen if we do that? And I think it's just, again, kind of shows people are being more and more creative about the different things that they're looking into to try to enhance the treatment of HIV, but also prevention. Okay. I'm excited. I'm going to give you two things. One thing I'm excited about is a relatively straightforward uh, treatment, which is the once-weekly um, Islantravir-Lenacapavir combination. Because patients, when you tell them, what about a pill you take once a week? They love that idea, uh, but we don't have anything like that. That's for treatment. So that's that's the, the, the easy one. And now the hard one, which is, you know, we, we now have you know, excision, excisional treatments in the works, various CRISPR-based or zinc finger-based or other excisional strategies, and can they be used to cure HIV? And I'm hoping that at some point in my uh, HIV career, I'm going to get to see a, a scalable cure intervention that is um, something beyond stem cell transplants with CCR5 negative donors. So let's, yes, let's hope. Well, I'm going to be cheesy and say that I think the future is bright. And I love hearing these stories um, about y'all's patients <laughs> that you're treating that you've had in care for so long. And uh, just the, I'm relatively new in my career, so I haven't necessarily been able to see it all. But just knowing the progression and the history of therapies and seeing where we are now is so amazing. And um, I'm excited to see what else happens in the world of HIV. So I want to thank you three for being here today and sharing all of your experience and knowledge with us. I definitely learned a lot. And again, I think this is going to be extremely helpful for people who maybe already have a process going to get new ideas and those who are trying to get it up and running. And thank you, our listeners, for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I've been your host, Rachel Britt, and our featured speakers have been Drs. Emily Kirkpatrick, Paul Sachs, and Jill Strayer. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Gesto, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by Julianne Hayes and Jeanette Bouchard. It was edited by Christopher Balladad, Adam Archer, and Ashlyn Coons-Coyne. Our production team includes Veronica Zafonte and Justin Moore. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.